there's low objective or mechanical feedback available. And so the feedback is going to have to be elicited and subjective and, and fundamentally team-based. Like if we're going to figure out how well is this going, we're going to have to talk to each other about it and be willing to take the risk of raising concerns or possibilities that might not make us popular. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Today on the podcast, I talked to Amy Edmondson, the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School. You may know Amy's name and her incredible work. Amy is the researcher who developed the concept of psychological safety and is the author of the 2019 book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. She does incredible work around building teams that value continuous learning and innovation, and I also feel really lucky to call her a friend. I really look up to Amy and her work. Like Charles Perrault, the researcher whose work Meltdown focused on, Amy is both a deep thinker and surprisingly undogmatic. Our conversations often feel a little like magic as we get to kind of pull threads from lots of different topics and weave together something that, if not wholly original, often makes me think back on it and reflect for days. In the episode, we talk about how organizations can work to develop cultures with psychological safety and how they can destroy it, often unknowingly. And we dig deeper into what psychological safety means in practice, especially in organizations that are engaged in knowledge work. We talk about seeking out and welcoming feedback to improve performance and the difficulty of measuring knowledge workers' efficiency and productivity. Talking with Amy was inspiring. She reminded me that how we show up at work really matters. Our ability to demonstrate humility, acknowledge our shortcomings, remain vulnerable, and ask questions not only contributes to our own personal growth, but it makes it much more likely that the work we do will actually be successful in the, wrong, in the long run. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Amy Edmondson. Before we jump into, you know, your research and the podcasting questions. I'm just curious how how are you doing on a on a human level? You know, I'm I'm getting a little uh, a little worn out by the sameness of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I the one on the one hand, I cannot believe how much interest, attention, activity, busyness. I mean, since I last saw you, which is so funny because that was really right before. The world shut down in a way, totally. not right before, but a couple months, and um, and of course the first reaction was this would just all, um, you know, we, first of all it would be short, and second of all we just hunker down and maybe read books, um, and who knew, right? Who knew right. that instead what would happen was there'd be, you know, days where you're presenting in Germany in the morning and Boston at noon and China in the evening, like because you yeah. can't, which you never could before but uh, it's it's um i you know i'm beginning to appreciate the um like the 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 aspect of life that is just contextual cues i think are orienting right that if i am always in this chair um and you know i'm always talking to someone it's like it's it's hard to put it all 
it doesn't have the same meaning as if some of, oh, remember that conversation at that lunch in London? That's different. I can see the busyness I agree. of the restaurant and all of that. So, so I'm a little sick of it, but also grateful. <laughs> well, and has, um, this might be more like content, but I mean, have you just gotten busier because people are, I mean, first of all, you know, your research, obviously people are becoming more aware of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of things. Right? But then people just need it now in some right, sense, right? right? Working exactly. remotely. People believe, and I'm not sure it's true, but people believe that psychological safety is more relevant than ever because of our remote working, right? But it's kind of funny because for me, it's always been more of a face-to-face -face phenomenon. Right. Okay. It's like inner, it's very interpersonal. It's very interpersonal. Now I know we're interpersonal when we're on zoom, but it's, um, it, it, uh, um, it's, it's not obvious. It wouldn't have been obvious to me that this would suddenly seem more relevant to people because of our dispersion. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, um, let's get into it if we okay. can. Might as can well. Can you, can you say who you are and and <laughs> in 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 two sentences summarize the the field that you effectively invented? Oh yeah, <laughs> on a good day maybe. Um, so I'm Amy Edmondson. I'm a professor at Harvard Business School. I have been studying interpersonal dynamics in the workplace for more than twenty years, and I think I'm best known for the work on psychological safety, um, which is about the ability of people to speak up at work, simply put. Yeah. And um, we can talk about the research origin story, which is is kind of fascinating in in many ways. Um, I'm curious, you know, what um, we were just talking about this, but why do you think people are are starting to become, you know, I, there's not a crowd that I interact with that has not heard of psychological safety. People, that doesn't mean they necessarily kind of understand it or have connected with it, but what do you think about it is kind of like, why is it prevalent now? What is, yeah, why are people drawn to it at this moment? You know, there, I could come at that question from different directions. And of course, one lens that's very obvious right now is the the pandemic. And, and through the lens of the pandemic, I think, um, it's we've never experienced so much change so quickly. We've never experienced so much disruption and upheaval and uncertainty and fear. And some of that fear is, of course, very um, rational and legitimate. Like, I don't want to get that virus. I don't want to get sick. I don't want my loved ones to get sick. And, and, and some of the fear is more irrational fear of the unknown of what, what might happen. And, and so I think this, this disruption, this uncertainty, this anxiety has made people more aware than they ever were before of people's needs for some sense of, of security and connection. And simply put, psychological safety is about the absence of interpersonal fear, the, the more or less irrational uh, fear. You know, I'm afraid of what you might think of me if I make a mistake or if I ask a question that you believe to be a dumb question, right? Then you might think less of me. And this is something 
so very fundamental in the human experience and certainly has its roots in our evolutionary past, right? Where you could be kicked out of the tribe, right? If, if right. The, the others- Inter Interpersonal elders, threat was life threat. Interpersonal threat was life threat. And then the funny thing is fast forward to the 21st century and at some level we still experience interpersonal threat as if it's life threat, even though it's rarely the case. I mean, almost never the case. And, and so we fail to do a good job distinguishing sort of healthy kinds of fear from unhealthy kinds of fear. And, and, and so we're, we're, we're inhibited. We're, we're inhibited by the unhealthy kinds of fear in counterproductive ways. And, and so, okay, so this is a long-winded answer of, you know, why is this getting, why is this work getting so much attention now? Because I think we're all, we're more, we're more, we're more vulnerable and more aware of our vulnerability and maybe importantly, more aware of our colleagues' vulnerability. I mean, we, 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 and if you're, if you're a manager or a team leader of some kind, you might be more aware that um, your, your team might need um, extra input or extra support or um, might have a hard time coming forward with some question or concern they have. And, and I think there's another, you know, I think you can, you can tell the story of psychological safety today as the story of knowledge work more broadly, where, you know, people are shifting from the Taylorist sort of, you know, we, we, we all, you can have perfect knowledge and you can optimize it to this realization that's, you know, there is no, there is no perfect knowledge and you've got different bits of it scattered in different parts of your organization and team. Exactly right. So if you take the pandemic out of the conversation entirely, I think there would still be, and in fact, there still was before all of this started, enormous um, interest, attention, kind of, as you said, the, the, the term was spreading, the discussion was spreading. And it's only recently that I have finally decided it's this simple. And you just you just alluded to it. It's this simple, you know. Once upon a time, not all that long ago, but certainly um, a generation ago, work-wise, much work was standardized, reasonably accomplished by individuals, and objectively accessible. Right. And 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 think about how little of the work today is that. So instead, it's. A lot of the work that has to get done today is terribly dependent on judgment. It's largely interdependent, not able to be done by individuals working alone. You know, I get my stuff done all as well. Off it goes to you to do your thing. No, it has what Thompson called reciprocal coordination needs, right? We, we have to reciprocal interdependence. We have to talk to each other um, in a more or less ongoing way for the work to get done as effectively as possible. And let's face it, it's subjectively assessed. I mean, it's very hard to know whether you just had a really terrific day of work. You know, did you perform well today um, or not? Um, you know, and you get even you get even bigger and you get to, you know, strategic tasks like here's the market we're going to go into. Here's a merger we're going to we're going to make like. That is, I mean, that's the, that's the, you know, in Meltdown, we talked about the idea of the wicked environment, which is not our idea, but this environment that's very low feedback. And I think that that's a, when you're in that environment, it's, 
you, you've got to kind of, uh, you know, if you're, if you're really aware and good at it, you're trying to put together a kind of mosaic of feedback from the people around you. And if they're not willing to speak up, then you're going to get, you're going to think everything is okay. You're going to, that's going to be your tendency. People are going to agree with you. Right. And when you say low feedback, it's, it's, there's low objective or mechanical feedback available. And so the feedback is going to have to be elicited and subjective and, and fundamentally team-based. Like if we're going to figure out how well is this going, we're going to have to talk to each other about it and be willing to take the risk of raising concerns or possibilities that might not make us popular. Right? So it's, a, it's, it's, you know, when, it, when you're in a, an objectively low feedback environment, then you need to have feedback as much more of a team sport. Yes. Where did you get those three criteria about uh, the, the kind of nature of work? I'm curious. I've just been, I've just been thinking about it a lot, right? So, I mean, I, I have a, um, a photograph in a slide uh, that I like to show recently, which is of uh, the, the Model T assembly line. Right? And, you, and it just, it evoked that, like what's special about that work, which of course took a, a, a long time for human beings to figure out how to make work look like that. Yes. You know, break it down so that people were interchangeable, so that tasks again could be done by individuals in a standardized manner in an objectively assessed way. That's what, that's what early management was all about too, was just making sure that you did it the way you were supposed to do it. And, and just thinking, thinking about how far from those conditions most of the work that people do today is just led me to think that the contrast would be helpful in helping people understand why is it, you know, why is it that like it or not, you are vulnerable when you don't know what people are thinking, when you're not getting their ideas, you know, because I think sometimes people think of it too simplistically, like it's going to be, um, well, there's this off chance that someone's going to come up with the next post-it note or something like that. But it's, but it's kind of remote. And by and large, I can still manage through fear and no harm is lost. But it's the, the so, so in other words, I was trying to answer the question of under what conditions can you manage through fear and have no loss of performance? And I realized there, are, there is fortunately an answer to that question. You know, when the work is standardized, you know, individual and, and, and visible or, or objectively assessed. Well, and, and as soon as you said, this is maybe not, not fair, but as soon as you said manage through fear, my, you know, the modern, one of the modern equivalents of that is the, the Amazon distribution center in, in some sense, right? Where it's, you know, everything is tracked, everything, I mean, you know, the, the kind of number of seconds is specified that, that a worker has to pick something. But what's clear about that, that job too, is that it is really using people as very sophisticated robots. And when the capabilities of robots get to the point where they can substitute for human judgment about what an object is, then those people will be gone. But you can see the, the, the mechanistic nature of the, of the system, uh, at least on that scale. I think that's an important point because fear, sometimes when we think like managed by fear, we then envision some ogre yelling at employees, which is sometimes the case. But 
fear is also present and also being used as a tool when it's uh, computers tracking how long it's taking you to do something and, and in a sense um, penalizing you in one way or another for failing to measure up to some, some standard. I mean, when you're basically in a state of anxiety perpetually in an, in an environment like that. Yeah. I, do you, do you read much science fiction? Are you a science fiction reader at all? I don't. My, my brother used to just be probably still is the biggest fan of all things science fiction. I only, I only bring it up because I just read a very short book, which the idea is the kind of the impact of AI will be not on the the worker that is doing the hard tasks. It will be on the manager and replacing, you know, they, they use the example of a burger joint. So replacing the manager and communicating to people over headset and saying, now go clean the bathroom. Now go empty this trash can. Was it clean? Was it full? Um, and of course, you know, the tyranny of metrics is the thing that would follow from that. And then we got to your, you know, anxiety is anxiety is enough. Anxiety is knowing that your job is is kind of being held by this sort of faceless, um, you know, faceless set of metrics against which you have to perform. That's right. And anxiety, again, the question of, you know, under what conditions will anxiety not harm the quality of your work? Well, if the work is utterly straightforward, right? If it, if it you know, it can be done in your sleep, um, metaphorically speaking. Um, if it's um, so trivial, so much essentially just busy work, sure. You know, if I'm in a state of anxiety, I can still do that work, um, maybe with some greater risk of error making, but no real loss of, of quality. But how much work? falls into that category anymore. Right. I mean, even so much of the work, at least in the US, is service work where it's human to human, where you're either interacting with customers or, or other people in your company or in your company's ecosystem in some way where that, where that human dimension and that ability to connect really matters. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, I know you have done uh, some work with Microsoft's um, CELA, their Corporate External and Legal Affairs group. And I've gotten to do some work with people doing innovation uh, around the, the delivery and, and creation and consumption of legal services uh, at Microsoft, at, at CELA. And what's, you know, what's fascinating about it is I think for me, it's, a, it's an example of that domain where we, we really do see this shift from, you know, in individual attorneys delivering services in this very artisanal way to, and by artisanal, I mean, kind of, you know, working carefully at what's in front of them, um, it being not necessarily standardized to now there being these kind of innovation drivers to try and, and standardize the work and leverage the knowledge and the people so that they are able to, um, you know, so that they're able to to scale up in the same way that that other technology businesses have and and do. Um, so I, I guess if you were to think about your if you were to think back at your kind of the contributions of your research, I mean, there are lots of different aspects of the research. I mean, one is measurement, one is sort of 
connecting it to the bigger picture of team performance. I think one thing that I don't know that I find really impactful in your research is the effect that that a high degree of psychological safety has on learning new things and learning novel things. And you've got that, you've got that paper, I think it's a, a series of kind of cardiac surgery teams that are um, that are trying to implement a new technology and you show a, a very strong relationship between the kind of team psychological safety and their ability to get to get to kind of deeply understand that technology um, quickly. So that's a lot of stuff, but what do you what do you see as the kind of the sort of set of contributions that that have been most important in uh, establishing this this field? Well, you know, I, I suppose all academics, researchers like me, you know, you, you feel very lucky if you have a, a hit paper, you know, a paper that um, is gets awards or is considered a good paper or gets widely cited. It's like, that's the kind of thing that, um, that really can positively impact a career in, in my field. But what I, I, what I think, and so long ago when my, paper, my first paper on psychological safety got published in a very good journal, that was a really good thing. And you, you, know, you almost fall prey to thinking, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm set, or I'm not, I'm not set, but at least I'm on my way uh, to making it in, in this field. But what I, what I, when I look back now, I think what is really fun about this is that when you have a paper that people first pay attention to, that means they pick up and start doing the work. I mean, I used to think of this as it would be my job to crank out study after study to show various effects, but I don't have to. Other yeah. people uh, do. Right? So I've done a handful of studies as you, as you allude to, but um, the, the really great news uh, for me is that people, other researchers, other researchers in academia, but also in, 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 um, uh, in, the, pub, in the private sector in companies have used the ideas and the measures uh, to find additional support for the power of this construct of psychological safety. So uh, what, and I, I have to say it really broke through, I think, because of Google. Um, yes. I don't mean Googling things, but I mean that Google had a very thoughtful and very well publicized study called the Aristotle Project, where the question was, what, what factors distinguish between high and low performing teams. And the answer ultimately was psychological safety was the most important factor, the factor that explained the most variance in performance across these teams, 180 or so in a, in a, in a study uh, at Google. So that got, um, that got people's attention. And certainly people who wouldn't be reading administrative science quarterly or things like that, they, um, they saw the Times, New York Times coverage of that story, or they saw it on the um, internet somewhere. And, and so that led to a kind of dual credibility. You know, it had the academic credibility, but then it also had the practice credibility that I think contributed to the, um, the, the dramatic growth in interest in this phenomenon. Right. And I think penetrated a whole new set of, I mean, in some sense, the set of people who were 
um, at the center of the new way of working that we describe, right? So, so technology people who could see themselves in Google, um, who did measure outcome. I mean, Google did measure a dependent variable, but that's beyond, you know, most even sophisticated tech companies are not able to, to kind of measure that dependency in, in that right. way. Right. Because I think, by the way, just on this topic of measuring outcomes or measuring performance in particular, it's incredibly tricky to think about what's the right time frame. Right. It's crazy in a way. I mean, I, I often, when I read stats like, oh, people have been more productive or less productive or anything like that, working from home or not, work, you know, it's, I, I can't get my arms around it at all. I think it's, it's bunk. I mean, how do you measure productivity, A, of knowledge work in, 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 in particular, but B, so much of what um, people do at work doesn't show up in, say, the bottom line for, for months or years, depending on the industry, right? If I'm in pharmaceutical, it's a decade before you can really see, at least most of the time. So when we sort of say we're, we're skillfully measuring performance or productivity, um, there's a leap of faith in there. Um, I know there are things we can measure that make some sense to measure, but we should not uh, fool ourselves into thinking we've really cracked that code. I, man, yes. Um... And, and, you know, that's back to that wicked environment. That's back to the nature of knowledge work these days. Um, I'm curious if, you know, one of the questions that, that I often sit with with psychological safety is I'm very, I'm, I'm on the very practical end of this, you know, so I'm working with managers, I'm working with teams. And um, one of the questions that I often find myself kind of approaching this work with as well, okay, what are the interventions that are possible? And, and what is the kind of, I mean, in some sense, I don't know if you would agree with this, but in some sense, psychological safety is itself a dependent variable of, um, you're, you're, yeah, you're nodding. Um, so what, I mean, what are the levers that, that we, can, we can pull um, as an intervener not pull, but what are the levers that we can show our client systems? Isn't it funny how mechanical our language is too? And I, you know, because yes. it's, oh, it's that's the language so, of, a beautiful it's, observation. it's the language of management. I mean, we've, we've had it for right. about a hundred years and it's like, we want to pull levers and we want to, you know, measure output. And it's all, it's all perfectly suited for uh, management and organizations as machines um, rather than as organisms. I, right. Yeah, I just, I just want to pause But I can there, answer, but, I promise, but, but, I will. But before yeah. before you answer, I think that's such a beautiful observation and, and so very thoughtful. And I want to pause and maybe we can push ourselves, maybe you and I can try and collaborate, collaboratively refine that question. And, you know, actually, I wonder if, um, how, would, how would Chris Argyris ask that question? <laughs> uh, that's, well, you know, that's a wonderful question question to ask how Chris would ask that question because uh, he's so, and of course, Chris Argyris was, um, I think, a very great thinker, very great researcher who um, looked at things terribly differently uh, from other researchers. And, and in a way, um, he was negative about the whole enterprise of what he called normal science in, in 
in the social science environment, meaning the kind of science that actually does think about things as inputs, process, outputs, and 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 then you know tends to measure it by and large in a cross-sectional way. I mean, sometimes we deviate from that and and then make these sort of conclusions about this causes that. And his premise was, if I want to know if this causes that, I better get in there and try it. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to see if that happens. Yeah. And if I can't produce that, then I actually don't have very good knowledge yet, and I get a, better get back to the drawing board, right? So he was, you know, in a, in a way, his um, approach was an incredibly humble one of yes. how, how little we know in our field, and that includes you and me, right? In our field, yes. how little we know about really changing things and getting the results you want. Now, the, the question you ask about what are the levers, and it's fine for us to use these terms as shorthand, right? Um, it's one, of course, I've thought about um, a lot. And uh, I, I have some answers, and yet I still, I still can't say that I've hit the Chris Argerus standard of proof, you know, that I that I've which would mean doing what you're doing, which is spending more time than I currently do going into organizations and rolling up my sleeves and working with people to see if I can help them impact the outcomes in a way they they, they really hope to do right? by by doing, let's say, by doing some of the things uh, that we recommend. And what, what Chris, Chris's work was about, um, was really fundamentally about learning and can, and he, he was struck by how good we are as human beings at closing ourselves off to learning, you know, that, you know, at being, at being blind to the ways in which we're missing something and blind to the ways in which um, certain things are in fact our fault, right? We, we tend to attribute the things that go wrong to other people's shortcomings spontaneously. We do that. Um, and, um, and so that's a kind of anti-learning stance. So he was consumed with the idea that we could be helped to be more learning oriented, you know? And I think nowadays we might refer to that as a more vulnerable stance, certainly a more curious, a more open stance you know, more feedback, um, curious. Seeking, yeah, Seeking. loving. Thank you, yeah. yeah. Yeah, feedback loving, exactly. That's what I was looking for, you know, that we should, most, you know, most of the time we don't really want feedback. Nobody wants feedback, right? I, I, unless you're going to just tell me how brilliant I am. Great, fine, love that, right? But, but the kind of feedback, when we use the term feedback, we usually mean something that makes us better, which implies we weren't good enough, which we don't like. And in even being told that you're brilliant has a form of tyranny with it, right? I mean, there is like, but what if I'm, what if I'm not really brilliant? What if they don't really know what a mess this was before it got to this point? I will or, get found out. I will get right. I, exactly. Yeah. It's exactly the fraud syndrome or yeah, various names for it. But you know, you you a little while ago you mentioned the cardiac surgery um, study. And indeed, and you mentioned along the way that psychological safety is itself an outcome. Of course it is, right? I mean, I think absolutely um, it is. And it's an out, it's an emergent property of a group. So where does it come from? Well, I, I think several things, but the one that emerged from that study to me is most important. And one that just has stuck with me is the is the act of framing, and this is something that I know you think about 
um, a lot, which is the opportunity to deliberately and explicitly frame a given situation in a particular way. Yes. You know, quite in the, you know, one of the most simple frames is a more of a, you know, learning frame versus a performance frame as in related to Carol Dweck's uh, work and that mind, mindset, you know, m mindset is such a, a powerful thing. But so let's go back to Henry Ford and think, I, I sometimes think that today's managers without realizing it, have this little tiny Henry Ford inside their brain, right? Who, who is, believes that they're supposed to have the answers who believes that they're supposed to hold people accountable, like whatever that means, right? Who, you know, in a sense, it's just, it's, it's, it's lovely, but it's the wrong frame for the nature of the work that you and I have been discussing. I want to, I want to, I want to interrupt and play with that a little bit, because I think that there is a deep sense in which, in which actually two things exist at the same time here. One is the idea that it's the wrong frame for complex interdependent knowledge work, which I agree with. But the other is that functionally speaking, these managers have spent their careers being rewarded for knowing the answer in, in most cases. So right. there is there is a kind of, there is a way in which that stance of knowing is adaptive to the career path of many managers. And I think that that's a really interesting thing that, that there's this sort of, almost like there's this sort of false correlation as you go through time as a manager between knowing the answer and getting promoted. And, and I say false, I mean, it, it is a correlation but I think it's easy to think of it as, as causal when really it's a side effect of the fact that your output is actually hard to measure. Back to that, it's hard to measure that in, in knowledge work. Right, so we buy into this myth. I mean, I was gonna say delusion, but that's probably too strong, but it is, it, it's a myth and it's a powerful myth right? that doing the following kinds of things will produce good performance and we're rarely proven wrong. We're rarely surprised. So we reinforce the myth um, that these kinds of management behaviors are the kind that are actually getting those results rather than sort of stepping back and say, well, what else, you know, what's in fact causally related to those results? Well, it's an ingenuity, kindness, you know, connecting, luck. you know, luck, um, happening to pay attention to what some customer said about a, a, a shortcoming, a, you know, an unmet user need and figuring out, going about solving it. Oh, your engineering training, maybe that came in handy, right? All sorts of forces, factors go into producing whatever that good outcome is, of which one may or may not be the management behavior of holding you accountable. Right, right. That could be anything from totally irrelevant to unhelpful, and we wouldn't even really know. Um, one of the observations I have around the way that people um, 
connect with psychological safety is it's it's often seen as someone else's responsibility in in some way and i don't mean that in a judgmental way i more mean that people come across the idea i had a physics professor in in high school a physics teacher in high school who used to say physics is like aerobics you don't get better by watching other people do it <laughs> and i just that has always stuck with me and i and i think there is something in psychological safety that is like that too it's like you can you can read about it you can hear the concepts you can you can even listen to you talk about it um and, and and yet there is a way in which if you are not showing up and putting it into practice you um you have not you, you have not understood what it is in in some sense i really like that uh i think that's an important insight because uh you're you're right that people often say, well, they'll say things like, which this, this reveals what you just said. They'll say things like, well, I'm not the boss, right? So I can't, you know, there's nothing, my hands are tied. There's nothing I can do, which I think isn't right, right? There, that, that actually for any one of us, how we show up matters. And, and that, and by how we show up, I mean, our willingness to take the interpersonal risks of being real. And that means everything from, if I don't know how to do something, I'll ask for your help. Or if I don't know the answer to, I won't make it up. I'll say, I don't know. And we'll smile and move on, right? I mean, it's all good. So that risk, you know, if, if, I, if I show up in a way that's vulnerable and open and genuine as a human being amongst other human beings in a small but powerful way, that helps you do the same and, and vice versa. And, and so there is in fact work that any one of us can do. And then the more we talk about it, the more it sounds like, well, that's the work we have to do of our own growth, right? That this isn't yes. really ultimately about the workplace. It's not ultimately about management. It's ultimately about um, personal growth, which I never loved the phrase, but, but, but maturity and wisdom and, and, coming to terms with our own infallibility. Like I am a fallible human being. Nothing special in that, everybody is. Right? I, you know, much as I wanna be the only one on earth who isn't fallible, that's just not true. So I gotta be okay with that, right? Yes. Um, so we talked about framing, which was important. We just talked about the kind of way that we showing up as individuals really matters. Um, you know, I think one one insight that I had from an, an earlier conversation with you and and Jim Dietert, who was your student for for because uh, he was at he was at HBS uh, yep. also, right? Um, right. So he is is this idea that you know people say, well, right, I'm not I'm not the boss. This isn't in my power. And yet, if you look at the way as you go up the hierarchy, things do, people do not express psychological safety more. People do no. not create more psychological safety because the threat that they're facing is different and in some ways elevated and in some ways comes from a, you know, comes from a different source. Um, there's the, the loss aversion of losing a high status position. I mean, there are all of these things that sort of perfectly combine to keep us, you know, in, in the mediocre part of the tribe, basically. And, and, Again, I don't mean that judgmentally. No, um, we're, it's the human social condition 
in a way. And 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 just to I mean to dig in a little, you know, framing isn't just okay. We we got to do some framing. It's it's really just the constant reminder of the nature of reality. <laughs> I know not to not to bring physics into it, but that that in fact we are not working in Henry Ford's plant, right? And and our default, I keep thinking our default mindset is that we are. So we have to override the default. Um, and 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 we override it with constant, frequent uh, mentions of uncertainty or mentions of interdependence, right? Anything we can do or say to remind people of kind of what we're up against. I mean, think about the, the your magnificent book, Meltdown, right? It's all about the unexpected events that happen because of complexity, because of interdependence. Um, and, and you can't be vigilant enough to reduce the impact of meltdown if you're not willing to confront reality as it is, rather than in our stylized, idealized models of it. So it's a, just a hit you in the face that we're in this you know, VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, and that, ooh, that's cool. Like that's the kind of world, excuse me, that's the kind of world in which anyone's voice could be mission critical at any given time. And we won't know who's in advance. So we're constantly setting that, that stage. You're, you're, you're sort of, um, I think of this as setting the rationale for why, you know, why psychological safety would, would in fact be a desirable attribute because voice is, is a desirable attribute. Yes. And, and I think, you know, what's interesting, I think I, I, what you just said just resonates so deeply with me. And I think it's, it's, you know, you tied it to meltdown. And I think that obviously that resonates with me, but you know, the, the, the moment, there were a lot of really interesting moments of discovery that I personally came to as I worked on the book, actually not even as I worked on the book, as I just went through my career. Um, I don't know if you listened to, we were both on this Rogers at Home podcast um, uh, about psychological safety, the what the new the new way of working. We weren't on it together. They just, they oh, skillfully produced us in. Wow, um, I don't know it. Okay, I need to find it. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll put okay. a link in the show notes. I'll okay. send you a link Thank too. Thank Yes, just that it really has spanned my career. And I tell a story on that podcast about um, how the most praise I ever got in my first job as a trader was making a mistake and then sharing it with my boss. And I got a lot. He was like, wow, great job. Great job sharing that. And it wasn't exactly that I shared that I'd made a mistake. I shared that I thought I might be doing something wrong, or I realized that there was something I didn't understand, which is that kind of you know, do you have to form, do you have to bring a fully formed idea with a solution to somebody? And, and if you don't, boy, is that a much better kind of substrate for creative problem solving and for the information from the lowest person in the hierarchy. But, you know, in 2010, when Deepwater Horizon exploded, I, I just remember having this very distinct thought that it's like, wow, a, you know, a, a petroleum, an oil engineer, could have been the the greatest environmentalist of of you know the the this the last fifty years or whatever the right time frame is. Right. Had had there been a an engineering manager who created a psychologically safe Absolutely. environment. 
Right. Like imagine the harm that could have been prevented. It's massive. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I know the case well, both from your book, but also from Mike Roberto's very detailed case study Yeah, and other sources, but it's, it's, um, it's just heartbreaking because it does come, there's lots of technical complexity here, but it, it really does come down to the human uh, organization aspect. Yeah. And all of the incentives that were, I mean, again, I don't want to mechanize it, but mm -hmm. you know, the, the kind of, that's, I think that if we go back to this, you know, it's like aerobics, it's like you, you've got to be, I don't even know if the right word is vigilant, but as a manager, you, you, I mean, as anyone, you've got to show up and just, you know, continually, continually respond with curiosity and openness and vulnerability. And, um, you know, I, I've heard stories of and worked in organizations that have whole, you know, psychological safety is our big thing. I'm sure you've been at some of them. And then you go from that to somebody having a meeting and, you know, the boss chiming in and saying, well, that's not, that's not going to work. And like, as soon as that moment happens, as soon as you get that sort of thoughtless pushback that's not associated with a real mindful listening from you know from everyone then then you're kind of dead and like you sort of yeah you know you you've got the knife <laughs> you've got the knife in the in the in the body and it's like you got to do a lot of work to take it out at that point it's true and it's it's i can't tell you how many situations i've been in where Again, yeah, this is the flavor of the month or maybe longer, but it's, um, there is a gen, I mean, here's the, the rub. It's a genuine blindness. I mean, when that manager responds in that way, or, um, when people in some meeting tell you later that they didn't correct a manager who made a really, you know, a big error in, in what he was claiming, but they didn't feel they could sort of say so, um, the managers in question are absolutely unaware Yeah, in those moments, right? This isn't about, okay, well, I know people have things to say and I'm just going to try to suppress them. So I, you know, no, of course not. Right. I mean, I think most people think of themselves as I have an open door policy, right? And they're unaware of the fact that the door is only opening in one direction. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's a, it's a genuine, it's a genuine blind spot, um, which is, which then takes us back to personal, you know, self-awareness, um, sort of humility, whatever, the, the various attributes that lead us to be more aware of the possibility that we're missing something, right? It's like, yep, I have valid data and, and, a, and, a, and an important point of view and I may be missing something. Oh no, I am certainly missing something. Right. Yes. And if I could live my life that way, where I really believe it, I really know I must be missing something. Well, then selfishly, I'd be asking more questions. Right. I'd be one because I, I want to know. Right. I don't want to be someone missing something. That's not a that's not a very attractive stance. So, you know, it's it's all in the blindness. And I, you know, we, we don't I, I think we still have a lot to learn about how do you help um, human beings overcome their blindness. 
Well, I, I think that you, I, I, yeah, I'm get, you're getting me really fired up here. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Cause I actually think this very much ties back to the question about how do you become an intervener in, in a system like that? And I think one of the things it suggests, and this is a big part of how I work with, with leaders and teams, but one of the things that suggests is as an intervener, <clears throat> and I'm not the person to put this together, but your, your job is to model for your client system, model psychological safety, model vulnerability, and bring awareness to what you see as a sort of privileged outsider, which I think is, is something that, you know, if awareness is the problem, we, are, we can never be aware enough of our own foibles. And mm, I mean, that's mm. what the whole, right. you know, um, that's what the whole behavioral economics research has has shown us but having an an, a, an privileged outsider in the room with the right conditions to say you know huh you know joe i don't know if you noticed this but you really shut down that conversation or you know mm, i'm i'm wondering if we could just hear a little bit more from lisa around that idea and i i think that those shifts of awareness can be so subtle and yet have such a have such an impact yeah you know, I when you just said that, which is just a really nice example, modeling and intervention, um, it brought up a model that uh, my friend Diana Smith gave me years ago, which is you you essentially fit in those. You know, if you see someone, let's say you see Joe shut down the conversation, you have three options. You know, and and one is to well, I guess four. You could do nothing, but that's not a terribly good one if you're there to help. Uh, but one is to bypass, right? Which is the lowest, like the least mm -hmm. threatening, but very powerful, yes. right? But you would just say, um, I'd love to hear what Lisa has to say, right? You know, in other words, you would just, you wouldn't name it. You wouldn't say anything about Joe. You would just invite Lisa in um, and Lisa would say something thoughtful and people would go, oh, you know, they'd get it. They'd get that there there hadn't been enough voices. Um, and then, uh the next one, which you illustrated, is name. You would say, Joe, I I observed you shutting down the conversation. I know you didn't intend to, right? So that's, I've named the dynamic. Um, and then the third, which is rarely used and, and, and only to be used um, in the case of really stuck systems is engage, which is we're now going to stop talking about the whatever the content, the business content that we've been talking about. And we instead engage the dynamic. We sort of sit yes. down and try to figure out why this group continually produces a dynamic that's not in its best interest. So easy, hard, hardest. <laughs> yes. And and I don't know if you, do you know the work of um, Edwin Nevis? I don't think so forgive me Evan, Evan. that's that's a, there's a lot there's a lot of words to know I don't mean to yeah. put you on the spot but he was um he was at MIT Sloan in the 80s oh yes um, yes 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 yeah I do remember him I mean I wasn't there in the 80s but I know who he is he was part of the system dynamics crowd wasn't he exactly yeah so the gestalt the sort of systems dynamics crowd and and that's what some of my training is in and you're exactly right in fact if I were to intervene with our hypothetical Joe, it wouldn't be Joe. I don't know if you noticed this, but you just shut down that conversation. It would be it would be an intervention to the group, and it would be, wow, you guys are really good at moving on from 
ideas. I don't know if you guys have have seen it. You guys are really good at keeping the discuss, you know, moving the discussion forward and just helping people realize back to what we were talking about earlier that that is both adaptive in some contexts and not adaptive in others. And and as I think as humans, the you know, you talked about personal growth earlier and I too share misgivings with that for for many reasons with that field, but there's one way of thinking about growth, which is just our ability to, to consciously make more choices. And, and that, in a, you know, that in a sense is part of what I think that, that we want to be able to do as individuals and as groups, as teams. I think that is a really, that is itself a good way of framing what it means to grow and come together. Actually, yes. I mean, to, when, you, when it comes right down to it, it's about taking responsibility, right? Which yes. I think most of us would like to think of ourselves as people who are willing and able to take responsibility. And so I might be unaware, I'm often unaware of the impact I'm having, but I, I still would like to take responsibility for it. And in order to do that, I have to learn what it was. And that's me talking as an individual, but as a group, the same logic applies. Like the group um, can take a sense of responsibility for its effectiveness, for improving its um, habitual routines that get it off kilter or, or make it fail to dig in deeply to some really tough issue um, or whatever. For its learning. The yeah, group can take learning. responsibility for its learning. To... Right, right, right. Because it wants to be the best possible performing unit over time that it can be, that, that it's, right. it's willing to do the hard work that that would require. Yes, yes. Um, I guess I'll just, I'll throw something out there and then see where that that takes us. But, you know, one of the things I was in, I was in a, a you know, a conference room at a very big company who's generally known for being, try, you know, trying to be open and have a learning stance. And I remember looking up and they had their core values on the wall. I mean, it was like a, I was in a stereotype basically. Um, and one of their core values was, you know, something like as, as coworkers or whatever, we, we speak up and share things that don't seem right to us. And I looked at it and of course I was thinking about your research and I was, this is, this was the, the subject of our, of my discussion with this group. And I, I sort of, said, you know, you guys kind of have this backwards. I mean, the the real, um, in some sense, the real challenge is not to tell somebody they need to speak up, but to tell others that they need to listen, <laughs> to tell managers that they need to listen. And so I'm. can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you asked because it allows me to say something that I've been also thinking about, which is, so I'll say it first, which is um, the term psychological safety is terrible. Right. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I did I, I did myself and the field a disservice by calling it that. Right. Because it's it's um, um, it just sounds I like it or not. It just ends up sounding soft or nice or comfortable or what have you. It's you know, it sounds like security. It's not that. Right. So it's, um, you know, a better way to talk about it would be um, felt permission for candor. Right. That I believe in a way, the way I do right now here with you that I, I can be candid and I can get it wrong and that's okay too, all of that, right? And I can, so, um, so um, 
wait, where was I going? What was the question? We were, it was about listening. Listening. Yes. Right. So, right, 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 right. So, you know, because what's really at stake here is the sharing and using of, of, of knowledge, of observations, of ideas, right? All of that's what's it's, that's what's at risk. So it is quite wrongheaded to think of this as only asking people to speak up. I mean, people will not speak up after a while or even at all if they believe no one's listening. Um, so I, I, I heard a, um, like a webinar um, uh, from, from uh, a leader at US Bank um, saying we're, we're, we're because of the, this dynamic we're talking about, we wanna build a listen up culture. We started thinking we had to have a speak up culture, but I realized that it's got to be a listen up culture. I think her name was Katie Lawler. And it, it's, it's a very powerful insight. I mean, of course it's, it's, you have to have both, but it may be that listening is where we are more at risk. I mean, and more, you know, less skilled, like all of us might need to be learn to be better at listening um, because lots of people make lots of noise at lots of different times, but maybe it isn't really um, the right noise. And if we were better listeners or even listening to the silence and saying, huh, I suspect there's more to it than that. And digging in, we'd, we'd, we'd get farther. And and I think that you know back to the your your mental model of the the little Henry Ford in in the manager head, um, you know there is a way in which that you you want to step you want to encourage managers to step away from advocacy and and move towards inquiry or curiosity right which right. is which I think it comes part and parcel with that ability to genuinely listen and and to genuinely not know the answer and to be you know but be curious be curious about what someone is what is trying to emerge from the group what someone is trying to communicate that's right and and i think you're just think about you know good clinicians in the medical setting um, the, you know, the yes. really good clinicians are, will all, are always asking questions. And why is that? Are they just better human beings? Well, not necessarily. What it is, is that they know, because they really get it, that it's the nature of the work, that they don't know what happened to Mrs. Jones overnight, right? That they don't know. And, and the more data they can get about the patient's conditions and symptoms, the better able they are to make the correct diagnosis, which they dearly want to do and then make the correct um, recommendation for treatment. So, so there's a kind of spontaneous reliance on inquiry before advocacy that just absolutely comes in the territory. And I think that's because they've always known patients keep changing, all patients are different, they keep changing every day. So yes. you know, I don't know, but why is it then you go into you know companies and people don't have that same clinical spirit because the reality is it's the same. Things keep changing every day, the customers, the employees, the technologies. So we ought to be showing up in the morning. Here's my inquiry, right? Here's what I, here's what I need to know to be better today or to right. make a difference today in, in the team's work. Well, and it, and it is interesting because I think that, you know, back to this idea of what's adaptive, doing work is also adaptive. So you've got to write the memo, you've got to, you know, roll out the strategy, you've got to do the thing, but 
I think that the the challenge is the balance that people are are often on the wrong side of that balance. Yeah, and it's not. Yeah, this isn't about not doing things because more often than not, you have to act to get the feedback, right? You have to act to learn. You have to act to figure out what happens. You have to ask the customer what they think. You have to uh, test the little, you know, design that you were thinking of. So it's um, it's just that so much of the work we do is language that a lot of times acting is talking. Yes, that's right. That and that, and that's the I mean that is the nature of knowledge work, right? When you when you it's the precursor for the 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 transformation in the world in in some sense. And whether that transformation is we're now selling products in a new market or we've got a new algorithm or we're selling a new service. Yeah. Now we train people, we train employees in how to deliver that service. Um, Yeah. So some things are products, some things are services. Very few things are just words like uh, a play or a, or a psychiatrist maybe where the whole, the whole work is done only through talking, but, uh, but there's always a, a, a spectrum, you know, from just pure language to a little bit of language in the beginning. And then, material comes out after that. Yeah. Um, what about parenting? How <laughs> what about, about it? <laughs> how do you think about psychological safety in the context of parenting, if, if, if at all? Well, I think it's, it's very similar. I mean, I think parenting, um, I, maybe this will, this will sound wrong, but I think it's very similar to the, to managing. Um, and because it is as a, as a parent, you want very much to manage the dual responsibilities of accountability and psychological safety or accountability and a learning environment. I mean, you, you want your, your, I was going to say students, you want your children to feel able to be honest with you. God knows you want that um, and, and, and um, speak up, uh, but you don't want to create an anything goes environment. Everything I just said is absolutely true for the workplace too, right? The, the, so they, they, may not leave those dishes in the sink, right? Um, they may not just opt out of homework. I mean, there, there are certain things that are, are gonna be pretty inflexible um, standards for which you're helping them learn to take accountability, take responsibility uh, for excellence in whatever domain that is, but you're also creating um, a safe space where they can take risks and make mistakes and you know, learn as much as they can um, without hurting themselves. Yeah, or without hurting themselves too badly, right? I mean, I think right, about- Right, yeah, 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 we all, yeah. I mean, emotional harm, harm, we're getting it a lot. You just don't want losing limbs and things. Yeah, you don't want losing, you don't want, <laughs> you don't want the, the, you don't want the irreversible kinds of right. kinds of harm in general. Um, or as, as I talk with my- As best you can. Yeah, as best you can, yeah. Um, I was on a hike with my eight-year-old who was probably six at the time. And he was sort of jumping on some rocks near the edge. And I said, you know, (laughs) hey, you well, right, exactly. So first I freaked out and then I was like, okay, risk taking is good, reminding myself. But then it was like, I think the the message I gave him, which I continued to to deliver is like, you always want to be at least two mistakes away from from a big problem, right? Like, yeah, 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 that's swing good, set, and fine, buffer. that's one mistake. You, yeah. you want a buffer, exactly. Right. In my <laughs> language, good. you want you want a buffer. Yeah. But I find using the language of tight coupling with my eight-year-old isn't as, isn't as good. <laughs> um, um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, uh, so you've spent, 
your whole adult career at at Harvard Business School, right? Is well, that- most of it. I mean, I I guess it's it's I I think of myself as an adult for the ten years before I uh, went back when I not went back when I went there, right? So I graduated from college and then I worked um, initially in engineering and then in sort of a hodgepodge of writing a book and teaching. Um, okay. And then in consulting, and then I, um, and then I went uh, to the PhD program. I, I want to support that you were an adult before yes, Harvard Business yeah, School yeah. as well. But so I thank you it's for long, long ago now for sure. I'm curious um, how, if you think about, if you turn your lens of psychological safety kind of inward to HBS, I'm curious what your experience uh, there was like. You know, HBS is a really good um, illustration of one aspect of the psychological safety phenomenon that we haven't talked about. Heterogeneity. Heterogeneity, exactly. It is It is uh, always local, right? It means if you are in, name a company, it's going to be, let's say Google, right? Because we talked about Google before and they found, they studied 180 teams and guess what? There was variance, right? So this is not a corporate culture phenomenon. And it's not, you know, HBS doesn't have or not have psychological safety. Different teaching groups have or don't have psychological safety. Different departments or units, as we call them, um, have higher and lower um, psychological safety. So I can really only speak uh, from direct experience about my unit, um, which despite being an organizational behavior scholar, I have always been last 24 years in the technology and operations management uh, unit at HBS, which is a kind of funny place to be, but it's it's been good for me because I've learned so much about other things uh, by being there and teaching some of that material. Um, but that unit has been just remarkably um, psychologically safe, I think for me uh, and, and others, right? That there's just a irrepressible spirit of curiosity and support. I mean, I I remember um, realizing fairly early on that everybody there wanted me to succeed, right? It's like, wow, like everybody, you know, peers, those way ahead of me, you know, that it wasn't, there wasn't a kind of look to your right, look to your left, one of you won't be here next year there was a kind of, um, what can I do to help, right? It was just infectious. And the curiosity they had about how work really gets done and how maybe what I knew, if I knew something about human beings, how that might impact their knowledge of the factory or of the innovation lab, you know, that maybe that could be helpful to them and vice versa. So um, it was always, I mean, thankfully, because I don't think I would have lasted long in an environment that wasn't as curious and supportive as my group was. Uh, But it was an almost an ideal environment for learning, but but striving. Like there's just a a way in which I wanted to not let them down. Like I wanted to do really good good work, which I wanted to do anyway, but it was, um, they believe in me. I guess I can do it and I guess I better do it. Yeah. Yeah, you're accountable to their expectations in the best way possible. Right, right. And and I think that's a great thing in any workplace. Like if you really don't want to let your colleagues down, you know, that you sort of, all of us are, you know, we'd probably rather sit at home 
with our feet up eating ice cream if you know we had our druthers but you don't want to let you don't want to let yourself down but you also don't want to let each other down and the customer down and however however you frame it right yeah well amy this has been uh so delightful thank you for um your your i mean just showing up and and sharing i really appreciate it and i mean i think your research is um is an incredible opportunity for the the kind of even the average person that that shows up to work to uh, have a way to think about how they can grow and and um, how they can grow as a team. And I think that um, I'm really I'm I'm thankful. It's funny to say, but I'm I'm like thankful that it exists in the world. I'm thankful that you <laughs> you did the work to to put it out there. That is very kind. Nothing nothing um, would make me happier than that statement. So thank you. No, it's been really fun to talk to you. Oh, it's been so fun to talk to you as, as I deeply anticipated it would be. I think I, I've always, um, I, I've appreciated your research, but also I've appreciated getting to know you a little bit um, over the, the, the last Likewise. little while. Yeah, no, I, this is the kind of conversation that's so much fun because it gets me thinking about things differently and in new ways. And that's, um, I just need more of that. And it's much more fun than just, you know, okay, here's a one way, here's what I know. Right, that doesn't. Me too. Well, and I, I think that we are, you know, these are, are hard questions and hard problems. And when you think about, I mean, when you think about intervention and, and you know, what it means to learn and what it means to, to, to participate in a, in a client system. And I mean, the, these are, these are things where the answers are all relational. I think that's true. And so it's yeah. hard to, you know, it's, it's hard to go away and, and sit in a room by yourself, even with good data and, and figure this stuff out. It's absolutely spot on. Well, great. Um, I'm glad we got a chance to come together and, and play today. So thank you. Likewise. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.